Welcome back. I'm glad you're here. David Penn speaking. Uh, the Professor Penn Podcast. Well, here we go again. Another conversation. <clears throat> I'm looking forward to this one because these are matters of uh, the greatest concern to all of us. How did we get in this mess? How did we get in this mess will be the subject of today's uh, transmission. As always, I want to thank uh, Free People Radio for hosting me. And uh, I want to thank our sponsor, TireGet.com. You have to buy tires. When you go to TireGet.com, that's TireGet.com, T-I-R-E-G-E-T.com. And I say this for some of my listeners and viewers who have called it and said my pronunciation of this word is terrible. Uh, story to that, maybe I'll tell it someday. You know down south it's tires, so please excuse me. Tire get. For all your tire needs, it's a win-win. You fund the movement and uh, you get the tires you need at the right price. PrecinctStrategy.com for a tutorial in how to get into the game of politics. Nothing could be more important at this time. Uh, I want to start out today and talk a little bit about uh, leadership. and. Uh, Leadership is an interesting thing, and I tell people all the time and you know that are around me, because there's a lot of people that want to lead, and the best way to find out if you're leading is look behind you and see if anybody's following. Uh, I, I personally have no interest in leadership. I'm, I'm actually kind of a uh, I'm kind of a guy who go live up on, on a mountainside by himself. And actually, it would be my preference to do so because I'm a, you know, if you've been watching the podcast, you, you know, I like to study and read and play music and, and, and practice, you know, physical disciplines. And uh, I'm not really into the, the public political thing uh, for myself, which actually makes me very qualified to do this because I'm not looking for any personal gain. I'm doing this for God, country, and family. And that makes my motivations quite uh, appropriate. Um, I see a lot of people involved in politics that have um, deep personal ambition, uh, psychological issues they're working out through the political process, um, social needs, um, financial manipulative needs. There's so many reasons why people get involved. And I'm talking about you know, here in Minnesota, you know, at, at, at what they call the grassroots level, which if you follow me, you know, I don't like that word grassroots because we the people are the government of the United States. We're self-governing. So, you know, everyone can come in. And I think the motivation that we want to come in is, is based on a personal uh, desire to enhance human well-being and to reduce human suffering. And if, if that's why we're doing politics, we're on the right track. But, but this leadership issue, really critical. And uh, people say, well, what does it mean to be a leader? Well, let's just say what I think it is today. At this time, leaders tell the truth. Leadership is about telling the truth. And since we're living in a world that's filled with lies, manipulation, and propaganda, 
that is shared with us by our alleged leaders, uh, real leaders, the leaders that we need to emerge to get us out of this mess we're in, are going to start telling us the truth. And that we can find that in, in, in language. And we find it from the word mislead, to be misleading. Uh, the Webster Dictionary, to lead in a wrong direction or into a mistaken action or belief, often by deliberate deceit, to be misleading. So when we lead people with lies and propaganda, manipulation, that's actually misleading the people. So by, by opposite or you know, by extension logic, to lead would be to lead with the truth. So I want to start out here with uh, Bill the Butcher. We're going to bring back Bill the Butcher on immigration because immigration is such an important issue for us to deal with right now. So, Tanner, if you would be so kind as to play Bill the Butcher on immigration, start at about 10 seconds and go to 128. That's the building of our country right there, Mr. Cutting. Americans are borning. I don't see no Americans. I see trespassers. Irish hops do a job for a nickel what a nigger does for a dime and a white man used to get a quarter for. What have they done? Name one thing they've contributed. Votes. Votes, you say? They vote how the archbishop tells them, and who tells the archbishop? They're king in the pointy hat, but sits on his throne in Rome. Bill's got mixed feelings as regards the Irish. Bill, deliver these good and fervent folk to the polls on a regular basis, and there'll be a handsome price for each vote goes Tammany's way. My father gave his life making this country what it is. Murdered by the British with all of his men on the 25th of July, Anno Domini, 1814. You think I'm gonna help you befoul his legacy? By giving this country over to them was had no hand in the fighting for it? Why, because they come off a boat crawling with lice and begging you for soup? You're a great one for the fighting, Bill, I know. But you can't fight forever. I can go down doing it. And you will. Well, there we go. Uh, the famous movie Gangs of New York, Martin Scorsese. Uh, director Scorsese's attempt to look at the uh, roots of the immigration problem and uh, bring to the American public the roots of the Republican Party, really. That, that Bill the Butcher, as I said previously, that guy is a real guy. He was the uh, leader of the know-nothings in New York a rabid anti-Catholic. Uh, he led a, you know, an armed effort to keep immigration, um, to keep immigrants out of New York City. And um, his legacy and the legacy of the know-nothings and the legacy of the Whigs, those are the roots of the Republican, the modern Republican Party. And of course, as I've said, People that are in the Republican Party aren't really aware of how other people think about them. Maybe they're aware of how other people think about them. They don't know why people think that way. And it's uh, this kind of uh, very uh, racist and uh, uh, discriminatory past, uh, which is the root of the party, which, you know, we don't have to look far to find it today, even here in Minnesota. 
I've unfortunately experienced a lot of anti-Semitism, seen a lot of racism uh, right in the Republican Party. Uh, just recently, there's a young uh, candidate, uh, political activist, and uh, political theorist, Royce White. And uh, you, you, many of you know Royce. Uh, he's in his 30s, young, young 30s. And he's, you know, he's, he's very uh, direct in how he thinks about things, and he sees things from the perspective of a, of a young black man. And uh, he tells what he thinks is his truth, which I think is wonderful. And I, I, was, uh, I had the misfortune to hear people reporting to me that in the Republican Party, he's, he's viewed as a physical threat, a danger of violence. And, you know, I said to the person that uh, shared this with me, I said, well, boy, I share a lot of those views myself. Am I a physical threat to the people in the party? Oh, no, no, of course not you. Well, is that because I'm old, er, or is it because it's racism? Uh, I would say it's racism. And, uh, you know, the subtle effects of racism, the subtle uh, manipulations of racism are something that um, our colleges and universities have tried to uh, bring to our attention. And I think there's some, some merit in understanding uh, how we think about race. As I've said, my father dedicated his life to this issue professor at the Minnesota for over 50 years. He was uh, famous, taught a class there called Racial Thought, and the, the, the main focus of that class was to help students um, e explore their own thinking about race. And my father's motivation uh, was, of course, because he had come out of the Holocaust period, and <clears throat> he knew that Darwinism and Galtonianism and Spencerism and the British academic tradition was deeply racist, uh, misogynistic, anti-Semitic. I mean, deeply, just, you know, baked into the cake and proven to be correct through science. And my father was about trying to unpack that for people, and he was way ahead of his time. He was 30, 40 years ahead of his time. Or you might say he was the father of the movement. And, uh, you know, maybe one day some Ph.D. graduate student will go back and discover my father's work, and he will be uh, identified as one of the fathers of this current, um, well, let me swear one time, this current goat fuck we find ourselves in, where, uh, you know, we hate each other. And that was not his intent, or, you know, certainly was not his intent. And his work's been hijacked, and that's a, a you know, a story for another podcast. But, you know, people in the party have been aware of this uh, race, racial and, well, this discriminatory problem for a very long time. So I want to play one more time. We played it uh, on the last uh, podcast, but it's such a critical piece in American history. I'm going to ask Tanner to play this Governor George Romney at the 1964 Republican National Convention, where he actually mentions the know-nothings. Because the know-nothings have faded into history. I mean, the people that are watching me, particularly if you're a party activist, and if you are a party activist, thank you for coming back. And please send this out to everybody you know, because we got a plan here. We're, we're executing a plan. But, you know, how many party activists know about the Whigs or the know-nothings, the history of our party? I mean, how can we deal with problems if we don't know their history? If we, we cannot understand these problems without a historical context for them. So let's let's listen to Governor Romney try to address Bill the Butcher. 
because that's exactly who he's talking to. This is Governor George Romney, the father of Mitt Romney, who, you know, I'm no supporter of, Senator Romney, but this is his father, George, in 1964, attacking the philosophy and the tradition of Bill the Butcher. Please, Tanner, let's listen to Governor Romney. Mr. Chairman, I yield 10 minutes to speak in support of this amendment to the governor of the great state of Michigan, the Honorable George Romney. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Mr. Chairman, Congressman Laird, fellow delegates, and fellow Republicans, I'm here at this convention because I profoundly believe that present basic trends and perils are rushing us toward a national crisis. And I believe to avoid or to survive that crisis, the Republican Party must promote the program and provide the leadership that will capture the interest, respect, and support of a majority of Americans. I think the future of this nation depends on that. Now, I want to make it perfectly clear. I'm not here to aid any candidate speaking at this time, and I am not here to detract from any candidate. And I appear to seek your open-minded consideration of a still stronger and more complete platform that will meet our needs as a party and as a nation. We have a good platform. I'm not here to criticize this platform. I'm here to improve it. I make this urgent plea for your open minds and hearts for the purpose of giving the candidates to be selected by this convention a better opportunity to win this fall. The strongest personality on earth cannot deal with the problems of this nation except upon the basis of correct principles. Our party was founded at a time of grave national crisis. It was our mission at our birth under Lincoln to preserve this nation established by divine providence with a divine destiny. The nation and its destiny were imperiled not only by the irreconcilable conflict between slavery and freedom, but also by the extremism of that time. And the extremism and lily-white Protestantism destroyed the Whig Party and brought the Republican Party into being. The extremists of that day called themselves the sacred cult of the Star-Spangled Banner, officially. They were known popularly as the Nomathics. 
While their political leaders sought refuge in silence, while other political leaders did, Lincoln spoke out as forcefully against the know-nothing extremists of his day as he did about slavery. He attacked both as a violation of the source, as the source of freedom and greatness. He attacked both slavery and know-nothing extremism as a violation of the principle of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of all mankind. And had Lincoln ignored the know-nothing extremists of his day, he would not have been president of the United States and saved the nation. In 1854, Lincoln said, quote, As a nation, we began by declaring that all men are created equal. We now practically read it, all men are created equal except Negroes. When the know-nothings get control, it will read, quote, all men are created equal except Negroes and foreigners and Catholics. When it comes to this, and these are still Lincoln's words, when it comes to this, I shall prefer emigrating to some country where they make no pretense of loving liberty to Russia, for example, where despotism can be taken pure and without the base alloy of democracy. Those are Lincoln's own words. You know, I hope you play that back. I'd like to play it back. We're not going to do it, Tanner, but uh, I'm going to continue to listen to it because, uh, well... Pretty brave to stand up in front of a bunch of lily white Protestants and criticize their ideology. And you could hear from the crowd. Some people were clapping, some people weren't too happy to listen to it. And, you know, okay, you know, we're, we're dealing with it. This is the leadership of the Republican Party in 1964 pleading for Americanism to leave behind the prejudices and the ties to the past, which is really the ties to Europe. And this lily-white Protestantism, this is really our, our, our window into how we've become embroiled in the affairs of Europe. Now, Bill the Butcher, you know, he was very obviously uh, anti-British because his father was killed by the British, and he was very... In the movie, the, the scriptwriter was very uh, careful to, to draw that out. But that's not the way it developed over time. And I think we need to understand how it is that Protestants that were so anti-European, so anti-British, within about 20 years or 30 years after this Bill the Butcher period, uh, put down their cudgel against England and completely integrated uh, back with the European intellectual tradition, uh, the Protestant tradition. And uh, we had a very, very vehemently anti-Catholic period there, which Governor Romney was referring to. And, of course, what happened? The Democrats picked up the, the Catholic immigrants, you know, and they picked up the Jewish immigrants, and then subsequently they picked up the, you know, Hispanic in, immigrants and, they picked up the cause of the uh, discrimination against the you know former slaves, and you know the Republicans have found themselves old and white and alone. When I go to Republican Party events, 
old, white, and alone, a dying party, because Bill the Butcher still prevails. And we, we need to work on that. And that's what we're, what we're doing here. Well, how did we get caught up? How did we get caught up in all these European adventures? We've been in three European adventures in 100 years. World War I, World War II. Well, you could call it four. You could throw the Cold War in. And now we got this little Ukraine drama going on, which is not a little drama. Actually, it's maybe the biggest drama in human history. Uh, it was that tie, that tie to the European continent that matters so much. And I think we want to we want to delve into how this tradition, this 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 religious tradition, has drawn us back into the very continent that our forefathers rejected. We left. You know, we know. I mean, we're all immigrants, right? Or for most of us, we can imagine how hard it is to leave everything and everybody behind. And go off to the new world. I mean, how you know, think how bad things were to do that, right? I mean, things were tough. And uh, the ties there, they just strong, very strong ties. I mean, I have them, you have them. We all have historical ties. But they were ruptured by that Revolutionary War and the War of 1812. And uh, the Crown was very, very intelligent about how it uh, went to put things back together with uh, the former colony. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that today. And we're going to talk about it within the context of this uh, Ukraine drama that's playing out, which is so potentially uh, devastating to all of us here in the United States. It could kill all of us. I mean, you know, how, how much more important can it be? Well, let, let's just realize what we're involved in here. Let's go back. Let, let's put a limit on it. Let's say let's start at the year 1800. Did you know that there was an Anglo-Russian war from 1807 to 1812? Probably the British ended it so they could go attack the United States. I mean, everybody's got limited resources. But they fought a war, and then it was followed up uh, in 1853 with the very famous conflict, the Crimean War. Now, this Crimean War... This was not a small war. This was the British uh, aligned with uh, the French and the Ottomans, the Turks, Ottoman Turks, against the Russian and the Russians and the Greeks. And this was a big war over Crimea, which, as you know, is in the news still to this day, contested territory, uh, you know, formerly part of the Ukraine, formerly part of the Soviet Union, formerly this, formerly that. Right now it's part of Russia. Because the people that live in the Ukraine held a vote, excuse me, lived in Crimea, held a vote, and decided to align themselves with the Russian Federation. Now, there are people that say that vote was fixed. You know, elections, who counts the votes is very important. I don't have the answer on that. But certainly right now, Crimea is part of the Russian Federation. And this, this, this piece of land has been fought over because it's got a port. It's on the Black Sea. It's strategically important. It's actually quite warm and beautiful there. It's a, it's a nice country. Hey, real estate value is very high. You know, if you're going to fight over something, at least be able to, you know, get some money out of it, right? Which is, you know, part of the deal. But this was no small war, this Crimean War. It started in 1853 and it ended, let me just give you an exact date. 
It ended on 30th March, 1856. So it was a three-year adventure of the British into Russia. Think about this from the perspective of the Russian. Now we're thinking about Vladimir Putin, the first Anglo adventure, the first British adventure. 1807. I mean, we tend to think that this war just popped up out of nowhere and the Russians are so aggressive. No, the British went and fought a war with Russia in 1807, fought again from 1853 to 1856, and this was no small deal. Uh, On the British side, which again was, uh, you know, the British and the French and the Turks, 119,000. 593 deaths from disease, 45,770 combat deaths for a total British, French, Turkish casualty count of 165,363 souls kaput over this piece of land called the Crimea. It was even more devastating for the Russians. 376,890 non-combat deaths, that's disease. 73,125 combat deaths. The Russians lost 450,015 people dead in this Crimean War. And it really, you know, it really beat up the, the Russian Empire. And it really forced the Russians to rethink their whole program and it forced them into a rapid uh, uh, effort to uh, modernize and develop their industry. And we know where that ended up. It ended up with the Bolshevik Revolution. But, I mean, this was a um, a major war. And uh, the Crimean War, uh, you know, you know, it really set the stage in, in the minds of the Russians for everything that happened subsequently. You know, we're always criticizing here in our Western media Russian expansionism, you know, the, the whole, you know, Putin is a gangster, this, that, thus, and so. But, you know, he didn't fight his, you know, the Russians weren't fighting in England. The Russians weren't fighting in France. The French and the English were fighting in Russia. Come on. This has to have some impact on the Russian psyche about NATO being on its borders because they've been attacked, 1807, 1853. But alas, we're not done. As a matter of fact, America got involved in this under President Wilson, sidebar, rabid racist, horrifying, horrifying racist and Darwinist. But he was our oh, great Democrat president in the annals of Democrat presidents. And he was presiding over the country during World War I. You know, uh, when it became apparent to Wilson that the uh, Allies were probably going to win, and this is what I want to get to today, how do we get in this mess? How did we get in this mess? When it became apparent to Wilson that uh, there was a likely victory by the Allies and that the United States was at the front of the pack and that America was moving into a period of really world leadership, he called together 
150 scholars from the great universities of the United States. Columbia University, Harvard University, Princeton University, scholars. And he asked them to come up with, uh, you know, some ideas about how the peace should be considered. In other words, they were planning for the future. He went to the bench, he went to the universities, and uh, he, you know, he came up with his group of wise men, so to speak. And you have to put this into some context. You know, again, the British were deeply involved in, in, in Russia during, you know, World War I. The Tsar was allied with the Allies against the Central Powers, and then the Bolshevik Revolution happened. Well, it didn't just happen up front. First, there was a military coup, and guess what? During the military coup, the British actually were involved in that, that coup. There was actually a British, a British armored car squadron commanded, commanded by Oliver Locke Lampson. They were dressed in Russian uniforms, and they participated in a failed coup. Hey, you know, that was, that, that's what you'd call foreign interference, right? The Crown was trying to determine the outcome of the politics in Russia. And this is in the Russian mind, right? Here comes the West into the domestic political affairs of a sovereign nation. They don't forget this kind of stuff. Nor should they. They shouldn't forget it because it's, you know, it's the facts. It's history. It's the history that we don't know. I don't know it. Do you know it? <clears throat> Let me ask you, as a, as a watcher, as a listener, as a political activist, as a member of the party, are you aware that the British intervened into Russian domestic politics and went so far as to be involved militarily in a coup? Are we aware of these facts as the American people? Why don't, why don't they teach us this in uh, fifth grade? Well, it didn't work, and the Bolsheviks prevailed. And uh, a few weeks after the Bolshevik Revolution, on December 23, 1917, the British and the French, oh, great guys, they held a convention in Paris regarding the future operations of British and French forces on Russian territory. And the conventions, this convention defined a British zone of influence in the Kazakhs region, and that's the territory of the Caucasus, Armenia, Georgia, and Kurdistan, while the French zone was to con consist of Bessarabia, Ukraine, and Crimea. And there was a certain economic you know, wisdom to this because the British had invested in the Caucasian oil fields and the French uh, you know, were, had their money in the coal and the iron mines of the Ukraine. So this was, you know, this is politics and uh, you know, business working together. They were protecting their interests by occupying Russia. Russia was weak. It had been weakened by the war in Crimea. It had been weakened by World War I. It had been weakened by internal political dissent because it was a very stratified society. And then it had a coup, and then it had a Bolshevik revolution. And it was just, it was just defenseless. So what did the British and the French do? They occupied Russia. By 1919, Here's what was going on in Russia. This is a little story they don't tell you. But listen, and you shall hear of the 1,500 French and British troops that landed in Arkhangelsk, 14,378 British troops in North Russia, 
1,800 British troops in Siberia, 50,000 Romanian troops in Bessarabia, 23,351 Greek troops were in the Crimea, 15,000 French were in the southern Russian region, 40,000 British troops were in the Caucasus, 13,000 American troops are our country. How did we get there? Well, we're going to talk about that. <clears throat> we're in the Vladivostok region, which is across from Alaska. That's in the, uh, you know, the far eastern part of Russia. 11,500 Estonians in northwestern Russia. Oh, the Baltic states, they got in on it. Maybe that's why uh, Stalin, you know, occupied the Baltics, because they threw in with the British. 2,500 Italians were there in Siberia. 1,300 Italians were in Murmansk. Oh, even the Australians got involved, 150 of them. Hey, dip your sword in the blood, right? 950 troops, British troops were in Transcaspia. Oh, hey, everybody got involved, everybody. 70,000 Japanese soldiers were in the eastern region. The Canadians, 4,192 Canadians were in Siberia. Even the Chinese got involved, 2,300 Chinese troops in Vladivostok. My goodness gracious. So this country was occupied, occupied. I mean, it was a smorgasbord. Everybody was going in to grab the cash. The Russians remember this. We don't remember it. We think the Russians are an expansionist power that we need to be afraid of. No, the Russians are afraid of the West because the British and the French organized an occupation of the country. And the Americans were involved. How did we get involved in this? You know, that was over there. We were isolationists. How do we get involved in this? Well, we're going to talk about this today. But before we do, let's have a little Ukraine news. Let's put it into perspective. We've got the past and the present all merged together in a stew pot full of danger. Tanner, can you play this uh, uh, piece, uh, Prigozhin, our friend, our Quentin Tarantino uh, character, Prigozhin, the, head of the boss of the Wagner Group, talking about the collapse of the Russian front in Bakhmut. Can you play this piece here starting at 142? I'm going to narrate. Got to get over to 140. There we go. The flanks are crumbling. The front is failing. Everything is going on in a global tragedy for Russia. The terrorist Prigozhin went on air with a detailed report. If you look at what's happening, you know, basically the, the Russian army is collapsing and the enemy will approach Bakhmut. <clears throat> He's really sharing with the Russian people, directly with the Russian people, that the Ukrainians, which it's not really the Ukrainians, it's really NATO, are occupying the tactical heights, and uh, the, enemy, the enemy is completely liberating territories, which is going to put the Wagner group at risk. And when the enemy manages the use of the roads and the infrastructure, it's going to really put the whole operation into danger. Поэтому 
the Minister of Defense and the head of the General Staff, the chief, uh, their actions, a number of uh, that they could not hold the flanks, and that put, again, the Wagner Group at risk, and they said that their brave soldiers would you know, hold, and they ran away, and they don't have enough ammunition, they have 10 percent of what they need at most, they can't actually cover the military, they can't cover, they can't, they don't have enough firepower. And uh, they're going to continue to storm the nest in Bakhmut, even though they don't have enough ammunition, which this is the Wagner group, and, you know, juxtaposed with the Russian military, which is running away. They've almost got the center of Bakhmut under control. they got about 20 buildings left. But it will do nothing uh, for the Russian Federation because the Russian military, which holds the flanks, those folks are running away. And in fact, the Wagner group is firing on the Russian military as they flee their positions. And that this failure is going to bring about a great global tragedy for the Russian people. Uh, and it's a little threatening to say global tragedy because you wonder what he's up to here. It's not a Russian tragedy, it's a global tragedy. And uh, it just goes on and on with a very threatening dialogue. Tanner, that, that's good enough. Uh, and, and again, this guy, <laughs> man, Prigozhin, he'd be a great, great movie character if, he, if it wasn't so real. And, you know, they're actually firing on the right. The Wagner group is actually shooting the Russian soldiers that are running away. And why I say it's a great global tragedy is because Russian military doctrine, doctrine dictates that this Ukrainian counteroffensive, is, if it's successful in in, in destroying the Russian army and, and starting to head towards the Russian border into that Donbass region, their military doctrine is they're going to use nuclear weapons. So that's why he's calling it a global tragedy. It's a very threatening piece there. And the Ukrainians are gaining ground. Are losing, uh, gaining ground. It, it, it is a, a coordinated assault by NATO-trained troops, some Ukrainians, mercenaries from all over the world, under the command and control of an integrated uh, strategy that is uh, as modern as it gets, uh, run by NATO, run by the United States, and uh, the Russians are in trouble suddenly because um, they needed reinforcements, the Ukrainians, and they got them. In fact, this morning I read that the Germans put up $2.5 billion. They just keep throwing money in here. But let's remember what we're dealing with. A war in 1807, a war in 1853, the occupation of Russia in 1917. This war goes back a couple hundred years, right? A couple hundred years. The British crown has been investing in and attacking the Russian people. And what do we, the United States of America, got to do with this? What do we got to do with this? And it's our money, it's our tax money. We're giving the Ukrainians the most modern military hardware. There are now, you know, planes and helicopters being shot down inside of Russia or crashing inside of Russia. Maybe they were shot down. If they were shot down, that would indicate that the most modern long-range rocketry has been given to the Ukrainians. If it's true, we don't know. Still waiting to find out. Uh, but we definitely know that there's cruise missiles, cruise missiles afoot, that that's a new, a new twist. If you can play this little piece on Luhansk, Ukraine used British 
missiles to attack uh, uh, the city of Luhansk. If you can play this little piece, it's quite short, but it's an interesting uh, visual, uh, you know, a, a video evidence of escalation. Tanner, can you find that one? More footage from the strike on Luhansk, where the supply point and repair base of the Russian armed forces was destroyed. Ukraine for the first time struck with a missile with a range of more than 70 miles. Russian military correspondents suggest that the strike on occupied Luhansk was allegedly delivered by a long-range ballistic or cruise missile. That's good enough. It was a British missile. The British are uh, up in the ante over there. Even our uh, esteemed President uh, Biden is a little bit cautious about giving uh, fourth-generation fighters and long-range missiles. Um, but the British claim they have a deal with the um, with the Ukrainians. British Defense Minister Ben Wallace said the missiles could be used within Ukrainian territory, implying that he'd received assurances from Kiev that they would not be used to attack targets inside Russia's internationally accepted borders. Well, isn't that nice? Let's trust these people with these weapons. That's great. They just keep up in the ante, right? This is a war that's been going on since 1807 between the British and the Russians. Essentially, the British have organized this for 200 years. 200 years of warfare. Well, why are we involved? Why are we involved in this? Well, let's go back to you know Wilson's planning for the post-war period. He got these 150 scholars together. These were professors from our best universities. They called their scholarship the Inquiry. Options for a post-war world, and uh, the academic group was directed by Wilson's closest advisor and long-term friend, Colonel Edward M. House, a more despicable character. Well, he fit in great with Wilson. Wilson was also a racist. Let's just, let's talk about who these people were because we got these 150 academics and they're being run by Mr. House. Colonel House, he wasn't really a colonel. He was an honorary title, like Colonel Sanders. Colonel Edward M. House, born in July on July 26, 1858 in Houston. The last of seven children of Mary Elizabeth Shearn and Thomas William House Sr. His father, interestingly, was an immigrant from England, who became an immigrant from England, which means he brought this kind of anti-Russian sentiment with him because the Russians had been involved with the British in a warlike fashion his entire life. Played a very large role in the development of Houston. But guess what? This guy was an anti-unionist. He was with the uh, Confederacy. He sent ships laden with cotton to evade the Union blockade in the Gulf of Mexico during the Civil War uh, into Montemoros, Mexico. And he traded for ammunition. He was arming the uh, South. This guy was a uh, racist and he was a Confederate. This would be Mr. House's dad. They had the same name. And as a young man, this is uh, President Wilson's best pal, uh, they um, put in their own writings, he put in his own journal, his own diary, that he, hara he harassed recently freed slaves verbally, and he used slingshots on them. And his diary entries, entries consistently reveal a deeply felt racism. That's a quote. 
quote, consistently reveal a deeply felt racism. And he had a belief in white supremacy, a Darwinist. What a surprise. He went to school in England. Another surprise, right? This is the guy who's in charge of these 150 scholars that Wilson put together to plan for the post-war period. And they had an output. It was called the 14 Points. This was the precursor of the Atlantic Charter. And, uh, well, this is, this, these 14 points were announced by uh, Wilson uh, not long after the Bolshevik Revolution. Kind of an interesting timing. The Bolshevik, Bolshevik Revolution was on December 23rd, 1917. Uh, Wilson presented these 14 points the next year. And I, there's 14. I'm not going to go through them all. You can go look them up, and I, I do urge you to look them up because you got to see it for yourself. But I'm just going to hit a, a few high, high points. Number two, absolute freedom of navigation upon the seas. This would be called setting up the international trade architecture. Uh, number three, the removal, so far as possible, of all economic barriers and the establishment of equality of trade conditions among all the nations consenting to the peace and associating themselves for its maintenance. There you go. There's the World Trade Organization in its proto-form 1918. These people were very interested in business, this, this group that was putting this stuff together. They were in it for the money. A free, open-minded, and absolutely impartial adjustment of all colonial claims. This is the beginning of that Atlantic Charter, based upon a strict observance of the principle that in determining all such questions of sovereignty, the interests of the populations concerned must have equal weight with the equitable government whose title is to be determined. Yeah, Roosevelt got a little bit more distinct about that, but you know they're starting to talk about uh, self-determination. The evacuation of Russian territory. Wilson wanted to get all these foreign occupiers out of Russia because he knew it was critical to having peace. And then basically the rest of the 14 points uh, was about getting all these armies out of all these countries. goes on and on. And number 14 is the precursor of the uh, United Nations. It's the League of Nations. A general association of nations must be formed under specific covenants for the purpose of affording mutual guarantees of political independence and territorial integrity to the great and small states alike. Remember President Roosevelt um, uh, rejecting the belief that the powerful shall dominate the weak. Well, you know, it was in this Wilson idea. Democrats, everything's a mixed bag. We're all mixed. We have light and darkness, just like the yin-yang symbol. Horrible racists, these people. Horrible Darwinists. But in the interest of business, they were looking for an accommodation so the money could flow. Because war is bad for business. At this time, you know, things had not been so organized like they are now. At this time, it was guns or butter, and they hadn't figured out how to make an economy out of war. So they viewed it as being anti-business, and they didn't want it. They didn't want it. They wanted peacetime, and they wanted the cash to flow. Okay, great. How did Germany think about these 14 points? Well, they didn't like it. But they lost the war, and they accepted the 14 points as the basis of peace going forward after World War I. 
and off we went. And on uh, May 30th, 1919, after the peace conferences, a small group of these British and American diplomats and scholars that had been part of Wilson's Elite 150 met at the Hotel Majestic in Paris. And they decided to create an Anglo-American organization called the Institute of International Affairs, which would have offices in London and New York. And this was the, uh, this was the start of the healing of the schism that happened between England and the United States of America in 1776 and 1812. When we separated from England, of course, we, you know, we were at war with them. We couldn't be getting along with them. But the crown, the crown, very intelligently had been sending its uh, scholars over into our academic institutions, and they were more schooled than us and more advanced than us. When I say us, I mean the United States of America. So they got their jobs, and they were in the high positions in Harvard and Yale and Columbia, Princeton, and they uh, you know, were pushing this uh, new organization, the Institute of International Affairs which became known, became known on the British side as the Royal Institute of International Affairs. You may have heard of this. It's Chatham House. It's called Chatham House. That's the building it's in. And uh, in the United States, it became the CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations, which is very powerful to this very day. And if we want to know why we're caught up in these European messes, go do your homework. You have to see it for yourself. It's the CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations. So let's look at how horrifying these people were when it started. Well, the uh, first officers, this thing was uh, incorporated on July 29, 1921. And the founding members included its first honorary president, Elihu Root, and its first elected president, John Davis, and a secretary treasurer, Edwin Gay. And these people, boy, they had an agenda an internationalist agenda from day one. Gay was the former dean of the Harvard Business School. This is the treasurer, the man who raised the money. And he immediately went out and hit up the richest people in the country and raised uh, over $2 million in uh, equivalent funds. Actually, it was 125000 Tells you something about inflation. Raised 125000 in today's funds, it's over $2 million. And he immediately started a, a scholarly journal with that money called the Journal of Foreign Affairs, which you can go get right today. It's uh, If you want to know what the globalists are thinking, subscribe to Foreign Affairs. It's uh, You know you don't have to do any secret agent work. They just publish it all, knowing that the American citizens are watching football and watching porn. They don't pay attention. But all you have to do is go read Foreign Affairs, and you'll know what these people have in mind for us. In the 1930s, the Ford Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, poured humongous sums of money into this organization. Next trip, we're going to learn about Henry Ford. Oh, he was a great guy. And Rockefeller, even better. I'm going to, I'm going to hold it back. The Carnegies, all these people. These people were all eugenicists and Darwinists and anti-Semites and racists. And they all got together with the CFR, you know. If you remember in, in the movie Casino, the Robert De Niro character says that uh, Las Vegas was the lords for gamblers. Well, the CFR was uh, 
lures for racists. Anyhow, <laughs> that's a funny line. I hope it made you smile. It made me crack up inside. Uh, who is this John William Davis? Well, all you have to know about this guy is he was born in West Virginia, which means he was born in the sticks. West Virginia is still the sticks. And he got himself an ambassadorship to Great Britain. So he was born in the hills of West Virginia, which is poverty. And in one lifetime, he became the ambassador to Great Britain. That's all we got to know about this guy. He loved his life as the ambassador to Great Britain. And he came back and he started a secret society, which is not so secret. It's called the CFR, Council on Foreign Relations. But we really want to focus on this uh, rut. Eli Root, the honorary chairman, um, he was the 41st U.S. Secretary of War, the 38th U.S. Secretary of State. He was the United States Senator from New York, and he received the 1912 Nobel Peace Prize, which makes you wonder about the Nobel Peace Prize. He is referred to as the prototype of the 20th century political wise man. And he advised presidents in both parties on a wide range of foreign and domestic issues. Uh, this guy, this guy was something else, this root. Because he, you know, he's an inheritor of this uh, Bill the Butcher. I mean, he was a contemporary of Bill the Butcher. This guy came right out of the wigs and the know-nothings, okay? This guy was a horrifying monstrosity of racism, anti-Semitism, anti-immigration, the whole nine. And uh, he was an attorney. And, you know, you know this because what he was really into was American colonialism. He helped design the Four Acre Act of 1900, which was, in, you know, involved the subjugation of Puerto Rico. He was part of the Philippine Organic Act of 1902, which made the Philippines a colony. The Pratt Amendment of 1901, which established American dominance over Cuba. He was a strong advocate for the Panama Canal, and the open-door policy, which was a policy vis-a-vis -vis China, uh, where the United States established um, a system of e allegedly equal trade and investment and guaranteed the territorial integrity of the Qing dynasty, the last dynasty. He was involved in the modernization of the army and turned it into a professional military apparatus. Uh, this guy was involved in so much stuff um, and this guy was the, you know, the honorary, this colonialist, racist, anti-Semite, anti-Catholic. This guy was involved in the formation of the CFR. And uh, not to get into him, I mean, I could go on and on about this guy. But uh, the CFR developed and became hugely important as a um, repository of um, academic expertise uh, that the government could draw on to develop its policies. And in 1939, uh, the council really achieved prominence uh, within the government when it established a strictly secret war and peace study, again, right, right before World War II, which was entirely funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. That's a subject for some inquiry, right? The secrecy was so intense that the council members that were involved in this study group 
were unknown to all the other thousands of members of the CFR because the CFR had spread itself out through the entire country, established chapters in all the major cities, and it did so to influence local policy. And this thing was allied with the British arm, the Chat, you know, Chatham House. They, there was two groups, a British group and an American group, that were working in concert. And when I say work in concert, they weren't working in concert. This was the British intellectual tradition penetrating our academic institutions, penetrating our government. This is how they did it with the CFR, and it's going on today. This is why we're involved in these European adventures, World War I, World War II, the Cold War, now this Ukrainian thing. We're over there because we are influenced. Our governmental leaders are influenced by this organization. Not only are they influenced by them, a study of 502 government officials surveyed from 1945 to 1972 found that more than half of this surveyed group, 502, more that's a statistical relevant number. More than half were members of the CFR and the Council on Foreign Relations. During the Eisenhower administration, 40% of top U.S. foreign policy officials were Council on Foreign Relations members, including Eisenhower himself. During the Kennedy administration, the number rose to 51% and peaked at 57% during the Johnson administration. Let me tell you how pernicious and pervasive this organization is. Today, right now today, if you look at the membership, it includes Elliot Abrams, and I'm going to read you his bio. This is right off the CFR website. Elliot Abrams is an American politician and lawyer who has served in foreign policy positions for Presidents Ronald Reagan, George Bush, and Donald Trump. Abrams is considered to be a neoconservative, a neocon. He is currently a senior fellow for Middle Eastern Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Oh, the next name, Stacey Abrams. Do we all remember her? Think of the strange bedfellows. Elliot Abrams, Stacey Abrams. Stacey Yvonne Abrams is an American politician, perennial candidate, lawyer, voting rights activist, isn't that said nicely, and author who served in the Georgia House of Representatives from 2007 to 2017. Can you think about an organization that can get Elliot Abrams and Stacey Abrams into the same room? And we're talking about fire and ice here. But actually, that's a scam, isn't it? They're not fire and ice. They both signed up for the CFR. So apparently, this whole controversy is a lie. It's a scam meant to confuse us. Because actually, the far left and the far right, I mean, there is nothing more antagonistic on face value than Elliot Abrams and Stacey Abrams. They hate each other when they're on camera. Behind the scenes, they're in the same organization. Do you feel stupid? I do. I feel like really a dumbass. I hope you feel stupid getting involved in this shit because these people are scamming us. We're being scammed. We're, our pockets are getting picked and we're going to get killed. Because when you can get Stacey and Abrams and Elder Abrams on the same team, that's called power. That's the power of the crown to buy with their colonial 
ill-gotten gains of inestimable proportions, the loyalty of despicable figures as diverse as Elliot Abrams and Stacey Abrams. These people are corrupt in the extreme. There is not a word that comes out of their mouth that I'm going to believe. I'm only going to look at what they do. And here's what they've done. We're $32 trillion in debt. Our country has fallen apart and the people hate each other. And we're on the verge of nuclear war in the Ukraine. That's what these people have done. I don't want to listen to what they say. I only care about what's going on. I want to check out the real situation. This Council on Foreign Affairs have brought forth so many of our most critical concepts, like the containment concept. That was uh, introduced by George Keenan, another guy we can look at someday, in 1947. Dwight Eisenhower, our president, chaired a CFR study group when he was president of Columbia University. Well, that's great. Every time I hear of Columbia University, I think of my lost daughter. She's a lost sheep. One day I hope she comes home. If she doesn't, she will remain lost. Hello. Nice to think of you on air. I hope you enjoyed that. Anyhow, there was our President Eisenhower. And uh, his primary CFR appointment when he was president as secretary was the Secretary of State John Foster Dulles. The Dulles brothers, okay, both CFR members. His brother is Alan Dulles of CIA fame, and uh, he was part of the, uh, well, he was part of the Kennedy assassination uh, by hook or by crook. We'll never know. All the documents are still sealed. Dulles, the, the, the John Foster Dulles, who became the Secretary of State, Again, Brother Allen was a CIA director at the same time. Isn't that interesting? Secretary of State, a brother, John Foster, head of the CIA, same time. Allen, wow, how could that be? Doesn't that sound a little bit incestuous? does to me. John Foster, the Secretary of State, gave a public address at the Harold Pratt House, that's the headquarters of the CFR, in which he announced a new direction for Eisenhower's foreign policy. Listen to this one. came right out of the CFR. Quote, There is no local defense which alone will contain the mighty land power of the communist world. Local defenses must be reinforced by the further deterrent of massive retaliatory power. Nuclear weapons came right out of the CFR. Council on Foreign Relations. Oh, boy, these are great guys. Guess who worked for him? Henry Kissinger, he actually had a, an appointment there, and he wrote a book when he was at the CFR, a very famous book called Nuclear Weapons and Foreign Policy. Really? Nuclear Weapons and Foreign Policy. Hmm. Teddy Roosevelt, walks, you know, walk softly, carry a big stick. Well, they took that out to the extreme, didn't they? These people were involved in the Vietnam War. Uh, these people have been involved in everything. They're involved in this Ukraine war. They were involved in the opening of China. A four-year-long study of relations between America and China was conducted by the CFR between 64 and 68. A study published in 66 concluded that the American citizens were more open to talks with China than their elected leaders. Henry Kissinger, CFR, continued to publish in foreign affairs and was appointed by President Nixon 
to serve as National Security Advisor in 69. In 71, he embarked on a secret trip to Beijing for talks with Chinese leaders. Came right out of the CFR. Another CFR member, Secretary of Cyrus Vance, Secretary of State Cyrus Vance, uh, presided over the complete normalization of uh, relations with China under President Carter. Council on Foreign Relations. Are you getting how this works? All these people teach at the universities that we pay to have our children get educated. You wonder why your kids come home and argue with you? You wonder why they come home and you don't know them anymore? Why there's a schism? CFR. Wow. I wish we could just have a cup of coffee together and commiserate because misery loves company. It's also said in China, two people with the same disease have a lot to talk about. I have kids. You have kids. We send our kids to college. They come home communists. Huh. Strange, isn't it? Council on Foreign Relations. Let me just give you a few of the current members of the CFR. Just a few. Just I'm just going to name some names. David Rubenstein, co-founder and co-chief executive of the Carlyle Group. Look it up. Richard Ann Haas, always on Morning Joe, in the morning on MSNBC with Mika. Her father, Zigby Newbrzezinski, oh, CFR, to the max. Ash Carter, former United States Secretary of Defense under Barack Obama, CFR. Larry Fink, oh, here's a surprise, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of BlackRock. Timothy Geithner. Geithner served as the 75th United States Secretary of, Secretary of the Treasury under Barack Hussein Obama. Stephen Hadley, principal, the Rice-Hadley-Gates Group. He was the 21st National Security Advisor. Oh, guess who was his boss? I think you can figure it out. Janet Napolitano, Goldman School of Public Policy, Attorney General of Arizona, Governor of Arizona, and Barack Obama's first Homeland Security Secretary, 2009 to 2013. Oh, the CFR is in charge of Homeland Security. Isn't that special? I just want to give you a couple more good ones here. Oh, Daniel Jurgen, Vice Chairman, IHS Market. Check him out. Fareed Zakaria of CNN fame. I mean, these people are everywhere. And, you know, they have their own little group of uh, organizations, secret societies they all belong to. Among them, the Atlantic Council, the Brookings Institution, the British American Security Information Council, the British American Security Information Council, the Center for Security Studies, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, Chatham House, there, that's the, you know, the British equivalent of the CFR, the Royal, the Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, Independent Policy Institute based in London, dedicated to help build a sustainably secure, prosperous, and just world. Bullshit. Council on Foreign Relations. The French Institute for International Relations. Well, the French don't want to get left out, right? Harvard Center for International Development. Conducts research at international development at all academic levels. Down at kindergarten, I'm sure now. The RAND Corporation, 
the Trilateral Commission. Leaders from Europe, Japan, and North America fostering cooperation among core industrialized areas of the world with shared leadership responsibilities in the international system. The Wilson Center, a global policy think tank chartered by the U.S. Congress. Oh, the Congress is getting in on it. I mean, this is just... Well, frankly, it's horrifying. And I'm going to share with you why it's horrifying. I grew up in this academic environment. These people think they're smart. Some of them are smart. You know, this is, again, I'm going to go back to my Truth Commission idea. I, I'm not a judge of people, you know, as being a judge. I don't want that role. I can't tell these people are stupid or evil. In fact, I probably can tell. Let me take that back. I want to talk to you very honestly. I can tell, but I don't want that job. I want we the people to have that job with the truth commissions. There are not that many of these horrifying assholes. There's not that many of them. They need to stand before the people and tell us why they did this to us. Why are they doing this to us? Because they clearly think we're stupid, and they make sure that we're stupid. They've dumbed down our education. They've legalized, you know, recreational drugs are legal in a large part of the country. People are getting high every day. Some people can get high every day and function. Some people just watch cartoons and eat Cheerios. Take them out of the game. They don't get them all, but they get a lot of them with those recreational drugs. Then there's getting people sick. The food groups, the food pyramid, guaranteed to make you fat and sick because obesity is a common denominator of a bunch of diseases, including dying from COVID. They gave us a food pyramid, guaranteed to make us ill. Where'd that come from? Same people, the universities. Were they stupid or did they do it on purpose? Come before us, please, and tell us where this food information came from. I'm going to invite someone on my channel that's a food PhD. like to talk about it. like to learn something. Are these people stupid or are they evil? I don't know. But you see, when people tell me about how healthy the food supply is, and I look at the obesity in my country and the disease in my country, and I know it comes from the food we eat, please, let's talk about it. I would like to talk about it. I'm going to learn something. These people beat their wives, and I know that because I grew up with them, because the wives would show up with black eyes. They cheat on their wives. They disrespect their wives, yet they're huge proponent, proponents of uh, uh, the rights of women. Uh, they're sex, sexually undisciplined. Well, hey, of course, that's their ideology. So they spread that through our society. Uh, I could go on and on. These people have, I'm talking about the motherfuckers that I give my money to to educate my children. These people are horrifying. And that's the social scientists. Let's get into the hard sciences, where the whole system is about generating a military technology that can kill everybody overnight. And we revere these people. No, no. I don't like George Wallace, but when he spoke disparagingly about our elites, 
he was right. I'm not here to speak positively or negatively about Donald Trump, but when he says these people are the enemies of the American people, he's correct. They think we're stupid because they made us stupid. And if you're hearing me and we're sitting down talking about this, let's get smart just to tell these sons of bitches to fuck off. I try not to swear anymore, but I am so mad about this. I grew up in this environment. I'm furious that these people have been given the reign to make us ill. That's why I'm about the politics of well-being. These people have intentionally made us sick so that they could rule over us. They're not smarter than we are. They're not better than we are. You and me. They're not better than you. They're not smarter than you. They just took the time to get credentialized. And they've taken that credentialization and they've turned it into an industry for themselves. And they've grown so far away from their roots, like the guy from West Virginia that became ambassador to Great Britain. Do you think when he went home to West Virginia, he had anything in common with the people he grew up with after he became ambassador? Do you think he wanted to relate to those people anymore? No. He liked those um, oak-paneled boardrooms and the tea and the crumpets and the chauffeurs and the young girls they brought from. My God, he was 60 and there's 20-year-old girls everywhere. Maybe there were 12. I don't know. I wasn't there, and I'm not going there. But these people have created a secret society for themselves that we the people cannot penetrate. But they're so arrogant. They just write it all down. We need to go and read it. Now, when I started reading The Economist magazine was 25 years ago, I didn't understand one single article because I'm just a guy. And I was educated. It took me many years to understand their language and how they hide their story in words. It's like reading the Federal Register. You go to federalregister.gov. Our government writes down everything that's not top secret that it does. If it's top secret, we never see it. But everything else it does, it writes it down every day. You have to be an attorney to read it, or you have to read it for a long time to understand the news that matters. They leave it for you to read. They just know we're going to turn on the NBA or the NFL or the Major League Baseball or some vacuous, you know, situation comedy. We're going to go to a movie that's just super stimulating with light and sound. We're going to get high. We're going to go out to the bar. They've given us a myriad of infinite pursuits that all do one thing, dumb us down. And while we're getting dumbed down, Let's talk about who these people are. Well, the CFR has created a journal. It's called Foreign Affairs. And it's currently edited by a, a man named Daniel Kurtz Phelan, a hyphenated last name, which tells you a lot, doesn't it? Uh, he's the executive editor of the magazine. And from 2010 to 2012, oh, who was president then? That would be Barack Hussein Obama. He served in the United States government in the United States State Department. And this in, included, uh, he was a member of the Secretary of State's planning staff. That means he worked for Hillary Clinton. And guess what? He was so close to her that he was her speechwriter. So the person that's editing this journal today was the speechwriter for Hillary Clinton. Unbelievable. 
And he has just published uh, recently, on May 11, 2023, an article called How European Trainers Have Transformed Kiev's Army and Changed the War. You can go find this, May 11, 2023, uh, in the Journal of Foreign Affairs. And there was two be- uh, two people here that uh, uh, wrote this. It's, they're kind of the odd couple. Uh, Alexandra Chinchilla and Jahara Matasek. You know, the first thing that jumps to my mind is, are these people even real? Because when you go online and look them up, how do you know? Could be These people could be spooks, right? I mean, Alexandra Chinchilla. Alexandra Chinchilla. I never met a person with the last name Chinchilla. But, hey, alleged to be uh, a person that studied at King's College in London. Cambridge, a Cambridge student. Got a degree in political science from the University of Chicago. Oh, another, that's Barack Obama's headquarters there, University of Chicago. A more Marxist place could not be found. And I'm going to give you a personal anecdote. Why do I know this? I have five children. I tried to educate all of them. took me a while to realize I was being scammed. I had one daughter uh, that graduated from there, and I went to the graduation, took my father. He was very proud. It was his last trip. And uh, I sat there at the graduation ceremony, and the uh, keynote speaker uh, told the students to default on their loans and uh, their education should be free. Communist. Uh, And then Jahara Matasek. Well, this is a really interesting one. I question, you know, if Jahara... If you hear this and you're real, you're welcome to come on and talk to me. This is a really interesting dude. Um, Frankie Matasek, an active duty officer in the U.S. Air Force, currently serving as an assistant professor in the Department of Military and Strategic Studies at the U.S. Air Force Academy. He's a warfighter, former C-17 pilot with over 2,000 hours of flight time and 700 hours of combat time. He was a T-6 instructor pilot in the prestigious Euro-NATO jet, Joint Jet Pilot Program. He has a BS from the United States Air Force Academy, a Master's of Public Administration, and that's something that people take when they're preparing for high-level positions, by the way. This guy's very, if he's real, he's very ambitious. He has an MS from Troy University. Okay, Troy, Alabama, Troy University. This is not that far up the academic flagpole. His current research projects explore the impact of technology on future warfare. Technology and future warfare. Transhumanism. Security force assistant. Hybrid warfare. Unbelievable, right? And before we leave Alexandra Chinchilla, what a great last name. I also, I missed this one. Listen to this. Alexandra held internships or fellowships with the RAND Corporation. There we are, back to that secret society thing. So these two people wrote this article, and I'm just going to cut to the chase. What the article is about is how NATO countries have been training Ukrainian soldiers for a very long time. And this was written in the United States by the odd couple. 
a professor, Chinchilla. Let's see. I didn't say where she taught. Let me see if I wrote that down. She's a professor. Um, I didn't write it down. I'm so sorry. But she is definitely teaching somewhere. And then this Jahara Matasek, who's, you know, involved with active duty military. Kind of the odd couple. So we've got, you know, a CFR-type academic paired up with the military person. And they're coming together to tell us a story about the training of uh, Ukrainian, uh, you know, uh, citizens in the art of warfare. And they basically say that the United States is putting a lot of money in. And that's great, but they're not. The United States is not doing enough to train these Ukrainians, and here we are on the verge of a breakthrough of the NATO-led forces. The Russian front is crumbling in this spring offensive, and they're talking about how it happened. And here's how it happened. What they talk about is how Ukrainians were trained. And have you ever did you participate in any training in your life? You know, when you get trained, you develop a relationship with the people that train you. And uh, what were they trained in? They were these Ukrainians and all the mercenaries from around the world who have joined with the Ukrainians have been trained by governments all over NATO, mostly, not a surprise, in Great Britain. Uh, they have to do this training, uh, of course, because 120,000 of Ukraine's soldiers have already been died, have died or have been, you know, wounded. So they have to, you know, continuously refresh the pot. And there's more and more mercenaries coming in. Even Bobby Kennedy Jr.'s son went and fought there, allegedly. And they're, uh, they're really, this, this whole article is, is really about how the British are leading the training of a mercenary army, a mercenary army. Yes, there are Ukrainians in this army, but there are thousands, maybe tens of thousands, of mercenaries from from throughout the world, the most trained stone killers that exist on the planet. On the payroll of the Crown, on the payroll of the United States, through our intermediary organizations, mercenary armies, like the Clone Army, inserted into the Ukraine, trained in the most modern command and control application of the highest level of military technology, operated in NATO, which is really the United States military, aimed at destroying the Russian army, which it seems to be succeeding. And what's going to happen? If they succeed in beating the Russians around Bakhmut, and the Russians start to fall back in this highly trained military expeditionary force. And let's think about this force. People from all over the world. People from all over the world. Just like that force in 1919, there were soldiers from everywhere in the world that had occupied Russia. Everywhere. Even the Americans were there. Under Wilson. The Chinese. The French, the Italians, everybody got to dip their sword in the blood. Does this sound a little bit like NATO to you? Because that's what NATO is today. Every country is participating in this war against the Russians. 
think about how the Russians think about this. This war has been going on since 1807. We don't know it. I, you know, do you know it? Are you aware that this war against Russia has been prosecuted by the crown since 1807? Since 18, over 200 years war against the Russian. Oh, just popped up out of nowhere. No, we have to put ourselves in the shoes of the Russians. They were occupied by an international force in 1919. Occupied. And here's an international force on their border, operated by the crown, trained by the crown, because they don't see a lot of difference between the United States and, and, and British. They call them the globalists. They're very succinct about how they talk about this. The post-World War II Democrat liberal order. They're fighting this. If you listen to their, their propaganda, they're very honest with their people about it. They think they're fighting evil. Well, how many of us think we're fighting evil here in our own country? I'm not a Russian apologist. I'm just pointing out that I want to live. I do not want to die over the Ukraine. The Ukrainians killed half my family. They, I know how some of them died. They killed them brutally, like dragging them behind trucks until they died. You know, trussing them up, tying them up, and dragging them till they died. Not a fun way to die. Took a full day. They drove slowly to draw out the pain. Or another, another case that I know where the father was shot after he watched his wife killed and his young child, they didn't want to waste, a, we don't waste bullets on young children. They bashed this child's head against a tree and killed it. And then they shot him and he didn't die. He crawled away and lived to tell the, he was a survivor, lived into his 90s, told the story over and over again and proliferated that trauma of him watching his wife shot before his eyes, a woman he loved, and a child, a young child, a young girl child, three years old, their head smashed against a tree by one of these people that we're fighting for right now. So myself personally, I'm not going back to the Ukraine. Uh, I don't see the tie to the Ukraine. I'm an American citizen. I'm not a Russian apologist. I'm not. But I don't want to die in a nuclear war over the Ukraine. Because I personally, my family, has been devastated by the Ukrainians. My Ukrainian privileges are suspended. I'm not going back there. And I had a guy who I really dislike said one thing. I, you know, you can get something from everybody. This is a guy that robbed me. But he did say something I like. The toes you step on today may be attached to the ass you have to kiss tomorrow. So Ukraine, kiss my ass. I'm about America. I'm about all the problems we have here. We are an unwell society. We are a society coming apart at the seams. And we got a bunch of professors, professors who profess to know more than we do, and they don't. They've been lied to for hundreds of years because they're just a bunch of little dweebs that got their PhDs and they're part of a system they don't understand themselves, or they're evil. They're either stupid or they're evil. I know a lot of these people. I interact with them. 
I'm amazed at how dumb a lot of these people are. I'm not trying to aggrandize myself. I'm a student also. I know when someone is thinking they're smart. And now there's some really smart ones in there. Again, some of them are very malevolent. Some of them are well-intentioned but misled. I mean, this is what the Truth Commission is about. Come forward and tell us how you've involved us since 1919 in a three, four conflicts, World War I, World War II, the Cold War, and this Ukraine debacle. Why have you involved us in the very drama we sought to extricate ourselves from by coming to the new world? We are here to escape, to distance ourselves, to divorce ourselves from the hatreds, from the racism, from the anti-Semitism, from the eugenics, from the Darwinism, from the Galtonianism, and the Spencerism of the European experience. We're here to escape the crown. That's why we're here. Why are we fronting for these people? Why is my life at risk defending the very ideology I sought to escape? That's where we're at today. That's where we're at. We have to check out the real situation. We're going to have to get smart. We're going to have to turn off the NBA and the NFL and Major League Baseball and the National Hockey League and music. And I mean, if we don't do it, they're going to kill us. I just want to leave you with this. If we, the American people, don't care enough about ourselves to defend ourselves, we're proving to these criminals that they're right, that we deserve to die. The only way this comes out for us is if we stand up and self-govern. So go get involved with your local political unit and join a political party and start to refresh this country. Pick up a book. Learn about the history of this country because it's not complicated and it's really ennobling and it will be fun to figure out. And there is no better feeling that comes than that which comes from figuring it out for yourself. You have to see it for yourself. And I urge you, and for the lives of my children, I beg you, please find it for yourself. And on that note, this was a little bit more of an impassioned podcast than I was anticipating. I want to apologize for my swearing. Um, I'm so scared about what these people are willing to do to us that I get angry. So please forgive me. I'm not going to swear. Under most circumstances, unless someone has a gun to my head and then I get mad, it's run, freeze, or fight. I'm fighting, and please join me. Free people of America, I hope to see you soon again, and I wish you well-being and long life. Thank you very much.